Hello and goodbye. Kansas will lose its governor to Washington and we'll get another one probably next week. How it happened, what it means. You're on Deep Background. And greetings. Joining us from Washington is Star McClatchy reporter Lindsay Wise, who was on the Hill yesterday. Lindsay, great to have you with us for the Deep, Bound, uh, Deep Background podcast. Always great to talk to you, Dave. Set the scene for us. We've been talking about Sam Brownback leaving for uh, another job for <laughs> almost a year, ever since the inaugural, as you know, uh, when uh, the first rumors started to surface that perhaps there would be a job for Sam Brownback in the Trump administration. But no one thought it would take a year, and it uh, ended in high drama. So let's work backward. Tell us about what yesterday was like. Well, I think there was not a lot of expectation that there would be high drama on this. Um, you know, there are 51 Republicans in the Senate. Um, and on this particular vote, the first one yesterday, which was a procedural vote, uh, he only needed a majority of the senators voting, and we knew that McCain was out of town. Um, but we also thought, you know, here's a guy who has served um, for many years in Congress. Uh, many of these people are his former colleagues, and that we figured that there might be at least one or two Democrats who might cross over to support his nomination. That did not turn out to be the case. So um, it got a little bit exciting there. I think um, we had a the previous, right before his nomination came up, uh, there was one for HHS, and that one was like 52 to 47 or something like that. And um, I was the only one, apart from the staff of the Senate Press Gallery, who was watching, even watching the Brownback nomination. Um, but then it became apparent pretty quickly that every single Democrat was going to vote no. And suddenly someone realized that Corker was overseas at Davos. Um, Senator Corker, who is the foreign relations chairman, a Republican. So that meant there were two Republicans missing, um, and pe people were like frantically counting <laughs> uh, who had voted, trying to figure out who hadn't voted yet. Uh, were they Democrats? That, that math is pretty easy, easy, isn't it, Lindsay? Forty or ninety-eight divided by two is forty-nine. Yeah, no. The problem was we hadn't. You know, you know how these things are, Dave, because I used to be up here. But you know, we're trying to keep track of who is putting their thumbs up or thumbs down, um, and who is like said I already and no and no. And sometimes you miss someone. So we right. were trying to figure out you know, who hadn't voted yet and subtract that from like, you know, were they Democrats, were they Republicans, how many people were left to vote? Um, so it was like, you know, whether it was going to be 49-49 or, or what. Um, so there's just some confusion. Like, I think there was a moment where somebody, the, the clerk actually read out that Feinstein had voted yes, um, but she actually voted no. So it was like, <laughs> it was kind of dramatic. I think there was a moment where everyone realized, oh, there were only like, you know, six Republicans left to vote, um, six people left to vote, all Republicans, but that would not get him to 50. Um, and yeah, that's when I think people realized, oh, we're going to have to call Pence. Yeah, right. Hey, um, this was surprising, though, wasn't it, Lindsay, in part because you assume when the Republicans bring the nomination back, you know, just for those who haven't been following this closely, the, the, the nomination of Sam Brownback to be the ambassador at large for relig international religious freedom sort of died at the end of 2017 and had to come back. But when it came back, wasn't the assumption that, well, they obviously have the votes now or they would have just let it die. So that that led us to our surprise yesterday because you would guess that the Republicans had had done a little counting and, and believed that they had the votes going in without this this margin, right? Yeah, I think there was some blame going around this morning and uh, sort of, like, it's not Monday morning quarterbacking, but Thursday morning quarterbacking. 
Um, but I was hearing from, you know, some Republicans questioning whether the whip had really, you know, done his job and whipped the vote and whether there had been some sort of oversight as far as like who was going to be missing. And um, I know they were trying to get the vote to happen quickly because they were all eager to get out of town after having worked the weekend before on the shutdown. Um, So I don't know exactly how that happened. I will say that it seemed to be a surprise to everybody. Um, and no least, uh, not least, uh, Sam Brownback. <laughs> um, right. But definitely, and, and, I was. And it was, yeah, go ahead. but it was not a surprise, was it, Lindsay? Or it was a surprise that that every Democrat voted against him. I. I mean, I think that's we we shouldn't let that part of the story go. That you know, the, the you know, senatorial courtesy is a long tradition in Washington, and yet Sam Brownback, for whatever reason. Didn't get it on uh, Wednesday, did he? Yeah, you know, afterwards I talked to a number of Democrats um, about that and Republicans actually as well. And I got some interesting answers. I mean, I talked to Sherrod Brown from Ohio, Democrat, to um, Senator uh, McCaskill. I talked to – who else did I speak with? Senator Tester from Montana, who's a Democrat. I think you talked to Orrin Hatch, and too. Orrin Hatch, right. Bit. And so the Democrats were all telling me basically that I, I remember that Sherrod Brown was telling me in particular that senatorial courtesy only goes so far when there's discrimination being that, you know, with the, when there's someone who's basically being accused of discrimination. Um, in that case, they're speaking of Governor Brownback. Um, and I think there was another quote that I got from um, you know Tester where he was like, "I have nothing against Sam. Sam's a nice guy, but you know what he said in the hearing regarding you know gay rights or you know religious freedom, whether you know is- there are issues of whether the people who are gay could be prosecuted or persecuted for um, for being gay, but for reasons. Oh, let me try that again. <laughs> um, so basically, I, I mean. Tester is one of those people who said, you know, he liked Sam Brownback. He had nothing against Sam Brownback personally, but was troubled by what he said in the hearing um, to defend his record on gay rights. Uh, and I think that became a big issue for Democrats. And um, in fact, I think Sam Brownback is very lucky that um, two of his Republican colleagues, um, Susan Collins and, um, and Murkowski from Alaska, um, Collins is from Maine. Um, they tend to uh, vote in support of Planned Parenthood, and Planned Parenthood actually came out uh, in um, opposition to Brownback's nomination because of his uh, what they said was his record on women's health issues, abortion, and also um, LGBT issues. And those women both voted yes for him, um, although I did talk to Collins earlier in the day, and she said that she had been upset by what he said in the hearing, but had been reassured uh, since yeah. then. Well, we, should, we should make it, it clear to our listeners, had one Republican, just one Republican, changed his or her vote on Wednesday, Sam Brownback's nomination would have gone down. It was tied, and that's why uh, uh, Vice President Pence had to step in not once but twice to break the tie and to approve the nomination. Do you think... It was just the Brownback position on discrimination that was the problem, Lindsay, because I get the sense that his national reputation, because of the problems in Kansas, because of the tax cuts, because of his clear unpopularity in the state, may have also played somewhat of a political role in this. Am I, am I right in that or not? I would say it's it's not wrong <laughs> to say that Brownback is sort of political kryptonite right now. Um, no one really wants to claim him. You know, he was uh, not that long ago a rising star in the Republican Party, a possible presidential nominee, um, and, you know, example of, uh, you know, putting the Republican 
policies into action in his state uh, in this Kansas experiment. And since then, really, his star has fallen very far. I mean, I would say, you know, he it is surprising when uh, someone who's a former senator doesn't get the support of his former his colleagues um, in a nomination vote like this. And I, I do think it's a reflection of just sort of Sam Brownback becoming someone that Republicans don't really want to talk a lot about, um, that they'd like to blame for the failure of um, his Kansas experiment rather than for, you know, they don't want to blame the policies themselves, the supply side policies. They'd rather blame Sam um, for something that he did or didn't do or, you know, he didn't right. cut spending and enough. No, or, there's no, the Democrats who voted against him pay no price for that vote, one assumes. I mean, it isn't, you know, it's not like, for, first of all, it isn't as if the president of the United States made this a high priority uh, nomination. I mean, he wasn't out there fighting for it that we saw, lobbying for it, wasn't even in Washington at the time the vote was going on or getting ready to leave for, for Europe. So, you know, you, you could see someone like Claire McCaskill, for example, who is looking for places to appear to be bipartisan because of her 2018 race, and yet she was a no vote on Sam Brownback because Brownback's unpopularity makes that an easier vote to cast. I agree. She also was interesting to watch uh, during the floor vote. Um, you know, she was texting or, or something on her phone um, and waited sort of late in the process to vote. And I, it wasn't clear to me, you know, if she planned to vote no all, all along or what. But um, she has voted in the past uh, for some of Trump's nominees. But I do think it was in some ways an easy vote for her. Uh, you would think maybe um, if Brownback's reputation was different, the neighboring state, you know, this is a relatively low profile post. Um, that it would be somewhere where maybe she could find her way to a yes. But um, I think really none of the Democrats felt under much pressure to vote yes. And um, in fact, it was sort of this disdain uh, toward Brownback during the vote. And we overheard from the gallery, uh, the press gallery overlooking the floor, we could hear Senator Schumer uh, make a crack to Jerry Moran, uh, the Kansas senator. Um, you know, come on, this guy's this, you know messed up your state, <laughs> not in that particular language, but I'm not sure what I can yeah, say on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, there and was... I find that I find, I find that fi- uh, fascinating. And I wanted to ask you about that, because I think we've all written Lindsay, about the governor's popularity or unpopularity in Kansas and the impact of the tax cuts and all the other decisions he's made here. And Kansans are very, very familiar with that, of course. But for whatever reason, Sam Brownback became a national political pariah sometime in the last couple of years, right? I mean, you know, the reputation of what happened, because when we went through the tax cut debate last year on the Senate floor and in the House, Kansas was held up repeatedly as a as an example of what Washington was doing. Sam Brownback is not well thought of nationally now, is he? I, th- I think that's why you'll see um, people like Grover Norquist basically lay the blame on Sam because, and they'll try and point to other states as shining examples of what will happen with tax cuts because they don't want to point to Kansas. Like nobody wants to be Kansas with a billion dollar budget shortfall. Um, So I think that there's a certain element of we can't blame the policies, uh, which we believe in, of cutting taxes, generating massive growth. Um, So we will blame Kansas for being landlocked, for not having a diversified enough economy, et cetera, or we'll blame Sam Brownback for not doing enough, not cutting enough spending or not getting his own legislature in line or, you know, handling things badly. And that I think that's how it sort of became, you know, it was such a a sort of big fall for him from being like the leading, you know, uh, 
proponent and an implementer of these policies to being like the one that nobody wanted to uh, talk about because it was like a bad example of these policies working out um, not the way they were supposed to. So I do think there is an element of that. I think there's also sort of like conspiracy theory among some of Sam Brownback's um, friends that uh, maybe the Democrats were feeling um, that by making this as embarrassing as possible for Sam Brownback or by dragging it out um, and making it take as long as possible that they could somehow influence like, you know, things against Collier, his uh, lieutenant governor, who will be trying right, to take over right. and, and make it harder for Collier to, to get enough runway and enough distance from Sam Brownback to launch his own uh, successful bid for governor. Right. Although from the beginning, this thing has been so tortured and, you know, triple bank shot uh, politics that the damage to Jeff Collier may have already be do- uh, been done. That may be a subject for another day because We'll have to see how he now, you know, takes over the governor's office. But talk to us a little bit about the job itself. I mean, I think the general consensus here has been that this is uh, uh, clearly a second-level job. It's certainly not a place of great uh, priority or public visibility. Uh, Do we think that Sam Brownback will sort of drift into the job and disappear or will he try to make it something more than than it has been in years past? And, you know, is it a, is there a chance that he becomes a lightning rod for continued criticism of the Trump administration? I think there's always a chance that Sam Brownback could become a lightning rod exactly. for something. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of competition in Trump's administration for lightning rods. Yes. Uh, I think he would like to kind of, you know— I think he would still like to make a difference. I think he is still very uh, religious, still very much a believer in public service. Um, and I think he he wants to do something important there. Um, but I think he also would, you know, he, he I think this is a position that he'd probably prefer, um, you know, in the State Department rather than, say, under the White House. Um, he does have All a right. certain amount of distance from uh, President Trump, but will be able to do his own thing. Um, I'm not... Sure, we'll have to see. I, I do plan on following up and, and trying to find out what his office is up to. And, you know, he may pick one or two issues that uh, really draw his attention, like whether it's the Rohingya or, you know, um, Christians in the Middle East, say. Well, it'll be interesting to see kind of what he uh, decides to focus on in his office. Right, right. Um, now, I don't think any of us, you know, we've written on the editorial board that the the job is important. I mean, religious persecution across the world is, you know, there are examples everywhere. And, and so that the position makes sense. But you also get the, uh, you know, we've had the belief for some time, again, back here in Kansas, that in part, Sam Brownback wanted this job so he could get away from Kansas. Yeah, it does. Give- you know, because he did, there was just no sense that in his final year, he would be able to rescue his legacy here. And so the question going forward really is, does he really grab the reins of this job because he wants it, or is it a good place to hide? I think it is a, a graceful exit, no question. Um, you know, dignified way to exit a job where that had become very toxic for him. I do think that um, it will be interesting. There is some potential, you know, one of his patrons in some ways is Mike Pence, someone he was really good friends with when he served in Congress. Um, and Pence does seem to have an interest and a focus on religious freedom and religious liberty and persecution issues overseas. So, and you know, he was there, um, even though he'd been uh, on an overseas trip. Pence came back and was uh, on hand in time to rescue Sam Brownback's nomination yesterday. Uh, so, I think that you know, 
we had heard that, you know, rumblings that it was Pence who was behind this appointment in the first place. It doesn't seem like something that President Trump was particularly concerned about. Um, that seems to be something more in Pence's kind of um, folder, I guess. So right. so it depends. Well, I mean, maybe if Pence takes a particular interest in this or, you know, but I, I think one of the other things I've been hearing, and again, some of this is just sort of, you know, gossip or buzz, but, you know, question of whether um, Tillerson, who is this, he'll be, who Brownback will be working for, has, a, you know, much of an interest in this, you know, position at all. Um, but there is a report that they will put out annually, and it'll be interesting to see if um, Sam Brownback puts his own stamp on this report. Um, but uh, I think the hope was among people who were pushing for his nomination was that this is he would be the first uh, senator uh, or really member of Congress in this job, and that it might help to have him, you know, when he's up on the Hill, you know, dealing with former colleagues, like having that reputation. But obviously we saw yesterday that his reputation is maybe not as strong uh, as he had hoped. And maybe some of those people had hoped um, that he has a lot of, uh, he's going to, any hearing he appears at now, I'm sure he's going to get some of these same questions uh, asked. All right. Let me wrap up. I, we're about out of time, Lindsay. You're so kind to give us a, a little bit of your time on this Thursday. Uh, we can't let you go without talking a little bit about the, you know, the last three weeks in Washington with shutdowns and and um, uh, DACA disagreements and threats and all the other stuff that goes with it. Doesn't the Brownback vote suggest that the path for future compromise on even tougher issues is going to be very, very difficult to find? I mean, I know, you know, obviously there were some unique things in the Brownback story that led to a 49-49 vote, but you don't get the sense that Democrats coming off the government shutdown dispute uh, are showing any signs of a willingness to, to, to be more bipartisan or reach across the aisle, and the Republicans aren't either. It seems like Every vote is partisan, and that does not bode well for what's coming down the pike in the next two weeks. I, interestingly, I did hear that actually from Sam Brownback himself when he was here um, in D.C. last week for the Bob Dole uh, ceremony where he received the Congressional Gold Medal. And um, I caught Sam Brownback afterwards, and we talked for a while. And one of the things I – he wouldn't really talk about his nomination, but I had sort of asked him you know, about the – you know, a lot of people were talking about Dole as this sort of statesman and how he was right. able to work across the aisle and deal maker. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there was a point at which she quoted uh, Dirksen, um, Senator, former Senator Dirksen, about how like he has inflexible principles and the main principle is I'm not getting this exactly right, but the main principle is flexibility, um, yes, something yes, like exactly. that. And I think that um, Brownback had said, you know, yeah, things are different now. And, you know, it's a lot more partisan and things are a lot harder um, to reach agreement on. And I asked him if that might have had an effect on, you know, the delay for his nomination at the time. And he kind of didn't really want to say, but you could tell he was a little bummed by it, um, just by the whole environment. And I I would say also that, you know, Orrin Hatch, who's a longest-serving Republican in the Senate, spoke to me after the Brownback vote and kind of said the same thing, that there was once a time when a former colleague would get more votes and, you know, a certain amount of friendship would overcome, you know, policy or political disagreements uh, and that the vote would not have been so close. But he said does not appear to be that. Particularly for a job like this, and you you get the sense that if it's 49-49 on a second-tier job for an outgoing governor, that finding a compromise on, you know, DACA uh, uh, almost seems impossible. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be hard, especially if they try and, you know, shoot for a bigger immigration package um, rather than breaking DACA out as a standalone. Um, I think that even immigration advocates uh, who really want the DACA fix are really afraid that, you know, the White House is going to try and um, 
and Republicans are going to try and lump it together with, uh, you know, really strict immigration policies about, you know, family-based uh, immigration and restricting all sorts of other things in a, in a wall and this and that. So I think, you know, if they are looking for some kind of uh, huge immigration deal, that's going to be very hard to do. I think if you brought up like a reasonable DACA bill, um, a Dreamer bill, on its own, you could probably pass it, but nobody wants to do that, apparently. Right, right. And you've got budget and debt limit and a bunch of other stuff coming up, too. Let me ask you a final question, let you go. You've been chasing the Brownback story on the Hill for, as I said earlier, close to a year. We all have. Um, there's got to be some relief that it's over. Yeah, I was um, relieved that it was over. It was a kind of <laughs> surprising way for it to end. But in some ways, looking back, I was like, of course, this was <laughs> dramatic and unexpected. That's kind of been that way all along. Um, I will say that, you know, we had been talking earlier about whether, you know, anyone knew the vote would be this close. And the more I reflected on that, I thought, no, no one did. I don't think the people working for Sam's behalf on the Hill knew um, right up until the last minute. Uh, folks on the delegation didn't appear to know. Um, so, it, and of course, I remember I actually ran down to McConnell's office, like when the vote, when the tie was apparent to ask if they knew if Pence was coming. And I just sort of got a shrug, <laughs> you know, you have to ask his <laughs> office. Um, I mean, the well, vice well, our friends office. at C-SPAN are, are going to have to figure out why there was a spike in traffic from Kansas yesterday, because I think we were all watching it and trying to count the votes as it went forward. And obviously not as close to the situation as you were. It, it I mean, there was a, a sense that. Uh, it was not only close, but had just one mind been changed, it would have derailed a lot of things back in Kansas. It didn't, but boy, boy, it was a, a bit of drama back here. Yeah, but uh, now it sort of won't matter going forward in the sense that, you know, a yes is a yes, right? And 50 yes, to 49 exactly isn't right. much different in the end from like, you know, 60 to 40. So in yeah. the end, he, he gets to, to leave and he gets to leave sort of with a certain amount of dignity, I guess, in the sense that he's going to a new job um, in the State Department. And uh, Collier gets to, to start to see how he can make the governorship his own and see if he can make a case to Kansas voters to keep him in office. All right. Lindsay Wise with the McClatchy Bureau in Washington, D.C. Thanks so much for your hard work on the story. And, uh, you know, as I say, congratulations that uh, after uh, all the reporting, it finally reaches some sort of an end that we have a better understanding of what the Senate had in mind. And thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks. All right, Lindsay Wise in Washington. I'm Dave Helling with the Stars Editorial Board. Thanks for joining us. You have been on Deep Background. <laughs>